Welcome to the Launch Angle Podcast, hosted by Drew Jarmas and James Lesh. In this week's episode, we covered early career learnings, the art of cold outreach to enhance your professional network, and book recommendations that we've found to be instrumental for our early career development. This time around, we went much deeper into a specific topic, which was all things career. And as a result, we did a lot more preparation in advance. To complement the show, James put together comprehensive show notes which you can receive free of charge by subscribing to our Substack newsletter, which is linked in the description. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with a friend or loved one and give our show a rating on the platform where you stream podcasts. We had a lot of fun creating today's podcast and hope that you enjoy. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Take uh, five of trying to do this podcast by now. Um, this is what we get, I guess, for me saying at the outset that this would be our best one ever. And that's going to go super well now that we have two awesome microphones and this new tech setup using Riverside FM. Um, we're now on take five of this uh, of this this podcast because uh, we've just been having a lot of false starts. But this is going to be the one. It's the one. Yeah. So as James said, we have kind of a better mic set up here instead of just having, you know, a mic in the middle of the both of us or a mic on a laundry rack like we did last week. Um, best setup to date. Uh, we both have our own microphones. We're doing a remote podcast here and using something called Riverside. So hoping that the um, audio is a little bit better. Got some feedback that was a little bit inconsistent and wonky. So Hopefully you guys are happy now. Yeah, this is definitely the best audio we've ever had and best setup we've ever had. So hopefully we keep upgrading the setups from here. We're doing video right now in Riverside. I don't think we're going to post the video, but maybe in the future because um, I think probably not far off from having like pretty high quality video for each of our own setups. Yeah, and I think Riverside does allow you to have video in 4k. So I think that's something we'll do in the future. Um, didn't come prepared with a clean background today. So yeah, we'll just, we'll just go audio for now. Maybe record video for the YouTube channel at a later date. Totally. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think we can do, we could do a video on Spotify too, though. Also. Can you, I didn't, I didn't know if you had to be kind of a big wig to do that. I don't think so. I think anybody can do it now. Wow. Okay. I could be wrong. Good to know. Um, but Anyway, uh, we can kind of jump into the agenda for today. Um, I, I, I can break it down. Sure. We, um, we'd gotten some feedback that, you know, we, it's, it's good that we do this in a kind of conversational way, but it might be beneficial to drill down on a single topic um, and maybe some subtopics that are included in that topic and really try to expand on some of the stuff we say. Um, I think both of us can be guilty of kind of brushing over things because we've maybe had conversations about it in the past. So we kind of assume prior knowledge on each of our parts, um, forgetting that there's other people listening who uh, weren't part of those conversations. So we're going to do things a little differently this week. And we picked a topic which is going to be um, broadly just kind of early stuff we've learned in in our careers. Drew and I are both 
pretty young in our uh, professional careers, but we're just going to talk about some of the things um, we've learned, maybe some of the mistakes we've made, some of the things that have been uh, really helpful. And then after that, we'll talk about some some kind of resources that have helped us, so books, services, courses, things like that. But first, what we're going to jump into is something that I had brought up last week that I would bring up this week, which was how to do cold outreach. So kind of break down what that actually means and, and why it's, it's a valuable thing to do. Um, so we'll just kind of go through some of the benefits of being able to do that, the do's and don'ts. And then I actually wrote out a little example email um, for anybody interested um, in, in learning more about this. Cool. All right. Yeah. So we'll just start with cold outreach um, just as the first topic to pick up from last week. So cold outreach, when I say cold outreach, I'm talking about reaching out to somebody that obviously you don't know that you want to build a relationship with for one reason or another. Usually it's, I'm, we're really talking in a professional context this week. So somebody who, um, you know, might be able to get you a job opportunity that you want, somebody who works at a company that you're interested in, somebody who has a career that you're interested in learning more about, or somebody who's just generally accomplished in ways that you would also like to be accomplished. So these are great people to do, to reach out to and try to build relationships with. And the reason that cold outreach is so important to know um, how to do today is for three reasons, you know, one, because we just live so much more of our lives online. We don't see as many people in real life. Um, obviously you can go to conferences and uh, depending on who the person is, kind of find them at public events. But for the most part, we're living our lives online. And then uh, another reason is because remote work and the tools that have sprung up around that have made it really easy to build valuable relationships online and to benefit from them, like have both parties benefit from them. Um, just from my own experience, like I, I work at a company with under 30 people where we're all remote, uh, we're, you know, a successful company that, um, very efficient. And, you know, we just, we've been able to do things all remote. People have been able to build great relationships with coworkers, um, remotely. So it's totally possible to build like a valuable relationship with somebody you don't know through cold outreach online. Um, and Drew, also stop me. Like if you have any questions about this, um, that you think might be important for the listener, um, sure. I'm going to try not to drone on too long about this, but just kind of go over some of the big points, um, about cold outreach. So when you're reaching out to somebody, it's important to know why you're doing it in the first place. So did they have an experience that you want to have, um, that you want to learn more about? Uh, are they just more accomplished than you in ways that you'd like to be? Uh, are they connected with people that you want to be connected with? Uh, could they possibly offer you a job? These are all totally valid reasons to do cold outreach to people in the professional world. And, you know, the, these are really the, the core reasons of why we do it. It's it, They have information, experience, connections, or, or opportunities that we would like access to. And so um, cold outreach, people can think of it as like kind of slimy and transactional, and it's not when done right. Um, when done right, cold outreach is a process by which you actually offer just like free value to somebody who you really admire and who you want to build a relationship with and with, with the hopes that they will offer value in return that they'll reciprocate. So through that lens is really how you should look at cold outreach as um, a, it's a, it's a positive sum game where you're 
reaching out to somebody with some piece of value. And we'll talk about what that actually means um, in the hopes of building a positive relationship with them. So they can benefit from what you provide. You can benefit from what they provide. And this can be, you know, a positive relationship going forward. Um, So with that being said, I think it's probably best to kind of get into an example of what this actually um, looks like. So for example, say that you are a a graphic designer or a user experience designer. This is a a common position in like in tech and say you uh, have been following this like new startup for a while. Maybe they've got like 20, 25 people. Um, You've been a user of their product for a little while now. You really like them. Maybe you want to work for their company, but you see um, that they don't have any job postings. So something you could do to network yourself into the company and to put you on, to put yourself on their radar and be seen as somebody who does valuable work is to reach out to like one of their graphic designers or even the founder. If you can get their information, chances are you probably can with LinkedIn. Um, So you want to reach out to them and send either like an email or a DM and say, for example, in this case, you could say, you know, hi name. Uh, My name is James. I'm a junior UX designer I've been a user of company X's product for a little while now, and I've noticed that the notification bell and main feed on the home screen of the app makes it difficult to do X, Y, and Z. Below is a design I created to potentially solve these problems. Briefly, I chose to change A, B, and C because I believe it fixes problems X, Y, and Z by making actions D, E, and F easier to use. Feel free to use this design if you'd like, and if possible, provide any feedback that you may have. If you have time, I'd love to talk more about other ways I believe I could help company X. So if that is something you would be interested in, please let me know. I understand if not. Thank you for thank you and I appreciate your time. So simple, quick, concise email where you're providing value up front. You're briefly in like one sentence introducing yourself, like who you are and why you're actually somebody they should pay attention to, um, who has some sort of like relevance and, and credibility for having done the work that you've done. And then Again, presenting the value that you're offering for free, making sure you're explicit that like, hey, this is just something you can you can have. It's yours. Um, I reached out because like, you know, I admire you and your work or I admire what com- this company is doing. Um, and I just really thought this could be of help. Um, so that's kind of the, uh, the general formula. There's other ways to do this. That's not like there's no one right way, I guess. Um, but there's some general principles of just like keep it short, keep it concise. And when in doubt, just value, value, value. Um you never want to be in a situation where you're trying to network with somebody and you're just asking without giving anything first in return, because chances are the person you're trying to network with and build a relationship with is, you know, more accomplished, more experienced in a position you want to be in. Um, therefore they probably place a higher premium on their time. They probably have other people reaching out to them. So it's a way to stand out. It's a way to catch their attention and a way to show that you're actually being like respectful of, of their time, which um, just again, by the nature of the position that they're in relative to you is probably more scarce, probably more valuable. Um, so it's kind of the general formula to do it. You can look up other ways to do this. Um, if there's any like questions after this episode and, and somebody wants to kind of comment and reach out, I'd be happy to like expand on this in another episode. Um, but I just want to go over that quickly because I think it's super valuable to know. So Drew, I don't know. I don't know if you have yeah. any questions based off that, but no, yeah, I think that's a really good summary, and I think that for anyone that's kind of interested in seeing the written version of that, maybe that's something that we could put in the show notes. 
Yeah, totally. We, we took a lot of notes for this, so we can put a lot of stuff in the show notes this week. Yeah. So um, for you personally, obviously, you're like passionate and knowledgeable about sending uh, cold emails. Have you had any particular successes with cold outreach that you'd want to share? Yeah, I've definitely had a few. Um, one I can share is from a few years ago, there was a startup that I discovered that only had like five or six people working at it. And I just thought the company was cool. I thought it was cool what they were doing. I saw the founder tweeting on uh, Twitter. And so I was just checking out their site and I noticed that on their blog, they posted like maybe three or four different pieces and not they hadn't posted in like seven months or something like that. And, um, I, I just took it as an opportunity to say like, Hey, like they obviously like, they, they want to be a thought leader. They're, they're putting out good written content, but just by the nature of the company and kind of other things they're probably doing, the blog is probably falling to the wayside. So what I did is just kind of based off some of the stuff, um, I knew about the space that they were operating in. I went ahead and, uh, just wrote like what I thought would be a good blog post for their site and then emailed it to the founder. And I was like, Hey man, you can use this, you know, uh, you know, totally for, for free. If you want, uh, use it on the blog. You don't have to give credit to me or anything. Um, this is just yours. I just thought it could be really useful. I really like what you're doing with this company. I think it's really interesting. Uh, let me know if, if this is something, uh, you know, of interest to you, if, if you'd like to talk more about, uh, more written work in the future, I'd, I'd be totally up for it. Not in those words, in such casual words, I was a little more buttoned up than that, but, um, that was the gist of the email. I definitely didn't say, Hey man. Uh, so, so I say hi and then the person's <laughs> name. Um, and then I just, I also, so that was an email and then I sent uh, the founder, I sent him a DM on Twitter to say, Hey, you know, just a quicker version of that. Like I sent this email with this, um, you know, no worries if you can't get back to me on it. And he did, he got back to me within like 24 hours, I think. And I wanted to write like a few things for them. So, um, and, and it just built a, a relationship that I have. So, uh, really no downside to doing it as long as you're providing value and being, respectful about it and not, you know, sending a really long email or asking for a million different things. So really no downside, only upside, great habit to get into. Yeah. And I think actually what you're highlighting a lot is that it provides value, but you know, if I'm somebody in a management or decision-making position and you send me something with value like that, it's actually showing that you're somebody that takes initiative as well, right? Like you're actively seeing a problem in another company and helping to solve it. So, you know, if I'm a manager or somebody that can hire and I have the ability to hire somebody that's taking initiative to help a company they don't even work for, you know, I'm going to, I might be more likely to go out and try to get them as an employee. So I think that's one of the even bigger themes that you could take away from it as well is to take initiative. Yeah, totally. That's the other thing. It's like, if there's no, really no downside to if they don't respond, because at least you're in their inbox, maybe they see it, maybe they don't. Um, may, maybe there's nothing they can really help you out with in the current moment, but you know, six months down the line, all of a sudden they, you know, they're like, Hey, that, I remember that, that, that guy emailed me with, you know, that great, uh, you know, redesign of our home screen. We, we need a new designer. Like, let me get back to that guy. Like it will pay off in some way, some form or another. Like it, it will, if you do it enough, it's not definitely not like a one-off thing that you can just do once, um, and, and expect like opportunities to come flooding your way. It's, it's something to get in the habit of doing. Um, I wouldn't say it's something to do like every day either, because 
you want to be discerning about it and deliberate and actually make sure you're have a reason behind like why you're trying to provide value for free to somebody. Um, you know, for me with that other company, it's like, I just, I just really like what they were doing. And I was, I was kind of following them for a little bit. So I knew about the company. It's like, you definitely don't want to just pick 10 random companies, be like, all right, I want to make more connections. So I'm just going to blast out, you know, all these kind of generic ways of like trying to help all these companies. I don't think that's a great strategy. I think it's better when it's a little bit more personal and you're kind of thinking more about just like, okay, what is the end goal of like why I'm actually doing this? Do I want to like have a continuing relationship with this person? Do I want them to potentially be like my mentor or my boss someday? Or do I want them to connect me to somebody they know? Like kind of thinking two or three steps down the line instead of just like, I hope I get a reply with something positive. So that's just another thing to keep in mind. Yeah. I think the other thing too, is there's many different ways that you can provide value that are not, you know, as labor intensive too, right? Like even if you heard somebody on a podcast and, you know, they're kind of dancing around a subject that you have a lot of domain expertise in, you know, you could send them a few articles or a book that you think would really help to round out their knowledge, right? You don't have to actually buy the book and sell it to them. You could just, or send it to them. You could just send them the link to the book and kind of explain how it helped your knowledge. I think it doesn't have to be something that's completely redesigning a, a, a web page, but I think that's also a great option as well. So I think it's scalable in that sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You, you don't even have to, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't have to be totally professional. It could just be for kind of anybody you want to meet and, and build like a, a positive sum relationship with. Um, so yeah, you, you totally could do it for, for like podcasters or just people you find interesting. Definitely. So I think the one thing that I want to kind of get into for this week is um, it's not as straight up applicable as James's, but really just this concept that really helped me, which is um, distinguishing between whether you want to be a specialist or a generalist and or kind of in between as a specialized generalist. So uh, Tim Ferriss kind of introduced me to this concept of specialist versus generalist. And so what a generalist is, is I really think about somebody that's kind of like Joe Rogan, I guess, like he specializes in uh, a few different things, let's say fitness or um, commentating or podcasting. But what makes him one of the um, most well-known podcasters um, in the world is that he has a lot of knowledge on a bunch of different things, right? He can connect with a bunch of different people and have conversations about things and get get everything to a depth where um, he can really connect with them. And what a specialist would be is somebody that's maybe dedicated their whole life to one domain, um, whether that's, you know, maybe biomechanics or philosophy or even just one niche of philosophy. Um, and that's great, but it's really hard to reach a level where you're in the 99th percentile in one very niche thing, right? Um, so if you're trying to be the best person in the world in philosophy or the, the foremost thinker in philosophy, it's really tough to get to the 99th percentile because you have a lot of people that you're trying to compete with. But what you can kind of do is become a little bit more of a specialized generalist. And what I mean by this is take a few things that are already your existing strengths that you're 
already above average at, let's say it's uh, for a concrete example, philosophy, but also write, writing, right? And a great example of someone that's uh, created a good niche for themselves is Ryan Holiday, right? He's become a specialized generalist by taking pretty good writing ability and a very good understanding of philosophy to create a great book series about stoicism. And this is something that I, since hearing these, uh, this advice have tried to um, focus on is becoming a specialized generalist because I always knew that I wasn't going to be in the 99th percentile of just strength and conditioning um, because it's really difficult to do. There's a lot of people with similar backgrounds that are all trying to um, fight for the same positions that you are. So it's really about differentiating yourself. And that's why I went back to school to get some uh, knowledge of nutrition and become a registered dietitian. And then on top of that, a little bit of knowledge in Spanish as well. So in all of these things, I'm not in the 99th percentile, but if you take the intersection of uh, people that have knowledge of strength and conditioning, are registered dietitians, and you know, speak Spanish, I'm a little bit higher up there than I would have been in just one of these things. So it's really about carving out a personal niche for yourself. And it kind of helps you set a direction um, for the future to create that niche. And I to build on that too, as you forget, um, with you too, it's like baseball is another layer on top of that, like the baseball background right. for what you do. Right. Yeah, I was not the best baseball player to to play, but you know, I have enough knowledge of the game where it's been actually a huge tool in baseball to be able to connect with athletes. Um, you know, just understanding the struggles that they've gone through, understanding what's going on in the game and kind of just having some of that situational feel, especially when you're in the dugout. Um, you know, if a guy <laughs> strikes out, you know, you don't go up to him and try to give him a high five and say, "Hey, it's all right, man. You'll get him next time. You know, baseball players like to be left alone. So just just having that feel can be uh, really helpful as well. But yeah, I think that's something that kind yeah. of helped me to differentiate myself is realizing that you don't have to be the best at just one skill. Um, you can kind of put a few of them together to to create your own personal niche. Yeah, it would be cool if you could actually like, quantify it to say, there's got to be a way because um, it's like, yeah, you're not the best Spanish speaker and you probably won't become the best Spanish speaker. Never. Just given Never. that there's millions of people who already speak Spanish as a first language. Um, right. Yeah. You're not going to be the best baseball player. You're not going to be the best, um, you know, strength trainer. You're not going to be the best dietitian, but yeah, layered on top of each other. Those four things are, um, I don't know if you've, have you come across anybody who has like the same uh, background? Um, I haven't so far, but I'm pretty, um, you know, early into kind of my journey in, uh, professional baseball. And I think the place I would be most likely to see this combination would be professional baseball because we have so many mm -hmm. Spanish speakers. Um, you know, you could potentially see it in soccer, but you'd be a little bit less likely to see Spanish. I would think depending on the, the region, maybe more Portuguese because of South America, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure people have this combination with other languages as well, with strength and conditioning and nutrition, 
but maybe not Spanish. I'm not really sure. Well, you also have, you also have sports psychology too. How many yeah. people have? Uh, I'm just now. I'm just curious. But how many people are? How many people cross those three fields? Yeah, I don't really know. And I mean, I can't. I can't also say that it was completely intentional. Me doing all of this. Some of it was happenstance, and this concept has kind of helped me to uh, understand that being differentiated is even a strength instead of a setback. Really, why I went back and got the uh, sports psychology degree is because I redshirted after um, my senior year uh, for baseball. So I had to go back and pick a degree. And there was some intention to differentiate myself because I didn't know if I was going to go back and ultimately do nutrition. Um, but yeah, I don't think that there's many people that have the combination of these skills. And, you know, in the end, who knows if having sports psychology is going to be um that much of a unlock for me, or if having this knowledge of strength conditioning is going to be an even greater unlock. But I think it just gives you a, a higher chance to have success, especially when in sports, you're part of a sports performance uh, team, right? I have to interact with sports psychologists and strength conditioning coaches. And the baseball gives me the ability to interact with the managers of the team as well and kind of know what's going on. So I think just bringing up some of those weak points, if you don't have that knowledge of the other people in the company can be really beneficial. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's a good takeaway though, for people is like, you, you said you didn't do much of this intentionally and you can probably count for people listening. You can count, um, you know, other places in your life where you've got kind of these different skills and knowledge areas where you're not, maybe you're, maybe you're in the top like 30%, say, um, you know, maybe it's your college major or like a hobby you've had for quite some time, um, which you've never thought about combining until now. Like you, you can look at it through that lens. Um, and I feel like it opens up a lot of options. Um, and it doesn't even have to be like, I guess it doesn't even have to be necessarily like concrete knowledge or, um, hard skills. It can be like soft skills too, that you've picked up from experiences, like being really good at communication or, um, leadership skills or like just certain experiences that allow you to look through like a different lens than, than other people. Definitely. And I think, you know, it could be a weakness. Communication could be a weakness for you, but just bringing it up a little bit could be, um, so beneficial to your career that maybe it's worth it. Um, really focusing some time and attention on building that skill of communication. I think we have these two camps, you know, of you should just double down on your strengths and ignore your weaknesses, or you should bring up your weaknesses only relentlessly. And I mean, the truth is usually somewhere in, in the gray area in between there. Um, you know, I think if you're just only doubling down on your strengths, there's probably some small weaknesses that you could focus on and bring them up to a serviceable level where, it's not going to be something that holds you back, right? Yeah, we'll talk about this when we get to the kind of books and resources section for career stuff. But in um, in the book, it's called The Startup of You. It's by Reed Hoffman and Ben Kasnoka. Um, Reed Hoffman's the, I think, co-founder of, of LinkedIn. And then Ben Kasnoka might be the other co-founder of LinkedIn. He's worked with Reed Hoffman a lot. But um, that book is all about 
their kind of career advice. And one piece of career advice they give is having a uh, barbell approach to skill building for your career. So if you think about a barbell, you've got like a big weight on one end and a big weight on the other end. And in the middle, you have a thin bar. And what the two ends of the barbell represent, like on the, the one weight is like your weaknesses where you have like all these weaknesses. And then on the other side is like, you have all these strengths that you have. And it's like, you should, shouldn't really spend any time in the middle. Cause like, it doesn't make any sense to get mediocre at things that you're not good at. Cause nobody's going to pay you to be mediocre. I think people are going to pay you to be really great at like, like world-class at one thing or two or really good at two or three things. And then it is helpful to, in cases where like certain weaknesses you have would be beneficial and amplify your strengths to bring up then those weaknesses just a little bit to where they can serve you a little bit better and you're a little bit stronger on them. But um, it doesn't really make any sense to like, like for me personally, um, I've tried to pick up, you know, coding like a million times um, because it just felt like a good skill to learn. And I'm just not good at it. Like I, I probably have like an intermediate understanding of uh, Python at this point. Um, and like maybe a little bit of JavaScript, like I'm with Python, I'm mediocre at best. Um, nobody is going to hire me to be a software developer. It helps me in my day to day job to understand like software development concepts that helps, um, to just have like a, a conversational knowledge about it. But from my experience and, you know, maybe I'm not trying hard enough or maybe I haven't taken the right approach, but if I just dropped everything and, and was like, I'm going to, you know, study hard to like get good at software development, I probably still would only get to like a mediocre level at this point. And it's like, it won't ha- still won't help me that much. Um, it's like, it's not going to help me become a software engineer. Um, not at least not a, a competitive one. And it's not going to help me that much more in my day to day job. Right. And I think also there's an aspect of diminishing returns too, right? Obviously the intention is your job is not to become a software developer. So if you were completely proficient in coding and you spent, you know, four hours a day for the next few months trying to learn to become the best coder, that's probably not even going to really help you that much in your job unless you take on some coding responsibilities. Um, there's going to be some diminishing returns there as well. Uh, just like for me, you know, I'm not the best strength conditioning coach, you know, in the world, obviously. And getting to the place where I am would take away a lot of time and energy from becoming a better dietitian, which is the job that I'm actually doing now. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to get even better at strength and conditioning because, you know, we have really good strength and conditioning coaches that already work for us that already have, you know, 20 years of experience doing this. So, you know, it's going to maybe prevent you from completely staying in your lane, you know, just having enough knowledge where you can converse about core topics that help you to uh, collaborate a little bit better. I think that's really the end goal with a lot of this generalist knowledge. Yeah, totally. I mean, they talk about, you hear all the time about how like great um, CEOs and like leaders of companies, they're not people who are, uh, they might be very, very good at one thing, but they're not these uh, polymaths for all these other different business things. They, what they do a really, really good job of is hiring people and deferring to people that they know 
are way better than them at all the other things that they need to successfully run a business. Um, so it's like, that's kind of a muscle. It, it, I guess it's, you could almost say it's like humility, just having humility to say like, okay, I'm not, I'm not good at this, but I can rely on this person to do it. Um, and th- that'll let me, if, if you can get good at doing that, then it lets you kind of give your most, uh, the most you can to the situation. Cause then you can just focus on like what you can actually provide. Definitely. And I think when we talk about strengths versus weaknesses, as you said, with coding, like you may have just not um, focused on the right way of learning how to code. And I think that's an aspect too, that kind of gets missed in the strengths, focusing on strengths versus focusing on weakness argument. Um, Because there's a lot of things that we think are actually weaknesses that might turn out to be strengths if you just find the right method. Um, You know, I've covered it before, but I dropped Spanish my junior year of high school because I just thought that I couldn't learn languages. I had already committed to go play baseball at a school. I only needed a certain amount of years of learning a language. And I just thought that I wasn't that good at Spanish. And it turned out that that wasn't real. Um, actually, I think that language learning isn't a complete strength, but it's definitely not a weakness for me. So I think going back peri- periodically and taking some time to evaluate, is this truly a weakness or have I just not tried the right approach or had the right help or have the right uh, support in some way uh, can be really beneficial so that you can continue to evolve and um, create even more strengths that, you know, maybe you thought weren't possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have any other uh, just kind of early things that you've, you've focused on? I know we just covered kind of specialist versus generalist. Um, do you, did you have anything else that you wanted to cover? Yeah, I think that um, another thing that was really helpful for me was just early on having a mentor. And I don't think that it was a super formal process in having that mentor. I think that I just had an advisor in undergrad and into grad school that I just really took advantage of and you know thanked him all, all the time for his time and asked a lot of questions to. And I think eventually over time, we just built a better relationship where I could rely on him to help me out with some career decisions and um, things of that nature. And that was completely instrumental in helping me to navigate some of the um, early career challenges and choices that I had to make. Uh, For example, strength and conditioning is something where you really need to make sure that you have a lot of your decisions uh, made intelligently. Like if I were to come out of undergrad and just go and work at, you know, like an LA fitness, it might've been a little bit more lucrative than um, going and doing unpaid internships. But ultimately to get to the place that I'm in now, going to LA fitness and becoming a trainer would be a pretty huge detour because I wouldn't have gotten experience under coaches that were super knowledgeable and work with higher level athletes than I would have at LA fitness. So I think finding a mentor to kind of help explain to you that, Hey, short term, yeah, this might seem like it's a better opportunity, but long term, um, here's what you should be doing and why can help you to really reduce some stress and get yourself on a better path. Yeah. That kind of makes me think about another thing from, uh, 
the startup of you, that book by Reed Hoffman is he differentiates how at different points in your careers, your careers, you'll have kind of these like seasons where it's like a learning and growth season. And then in other times it can be, I think he calls it like a mercenary season almost where you're, you're kind of just focused on making money and learning comes second. He's like, you can obviously have a situation where both things are happening. Um, he's like, but it's just more common for them to be separate. And like the perfect example is like, you know, like what you just said earlier in your career, doing something that's completely unpaid where most of your, the value you're getting from is you're learning the ins and outs of the career field and the industry um, versus like you could have sacrificed the learning for something where the income is more uh, of a sure thing. Um, but it's just kind of thinking about like, where does that uh, get you ultimately? Yeah. And I think also matching up those periods of growth with windows of opportunity is where, you know, the magic happens. Like if I were to wait, you know, a few years, let's say it's five years um, after working at LA fitness um, or any other kind of commercial gym where I'm not training athletes, then people would be a little bit less likely to take me on for internships. And it'd be kind of harder to get that first internship in college strength and conditioning. And then, you know, if you don't get the first one, it's tougher to get the second one. Um, and the third one after that. So there's windows of opportunity that you need to take advantage of, um, which I think that a career mentor can really help you to, um, to do. And uh, they can really expedite that process for you and help you make some better decisions. Yeah, totally. Um, I have had a mentor at work now for, gosh, I don't know, like maybe eight or 10 months now. Um, which has been uh, great for my career development. Um, this is somebody who knew that I wanted to transition into a uh, product management role and uh, was just gracious enough to actually take me on and let me work with them and, and learn from them. This kind of goes back a little bit to cold outreach where there's variations of cold outreach where you could, this is somebody I reached out to from within my own company where like I work at a company that's small, but big enough where I don't talk to everybody in the company every day. Um, or sometimes some people at all, it's just our work doesn't cross over. And so you can kind of do it within your own company where like, if there's somebody you want to get to know better or, um, who you might be able to facilitate a kind of mentor mentee relationship with and help them out with some of their work in exchange for some of their knowledge, you can also kind of do this outreach to people. Um, and it's a little bit warmer and easier, um, within your own company. So like value first and be like, Hey, you know, I have, I you know checked it with, you know, my manager, like I have extra capacity to take on work. Like if you have anything you need help with, like, you know, whoever you need to run that by, but like, I'm willing to help. Um, this is something I really want to learn more about. It's totally a great way to go about getting a mentor at your own company. And that's exactly what I did, which, um, has been great for learning, the hard skills of my job, but it's been even better for learning the soft skills. So this is somebody who has uh, 13 or 14 more years of experience than I do. And they're very good at managing um, really professional relationships and um, colleague relationships and making sure uh, communication happens in a timely and efficient way to, to make everything run smoothly. And that's just not something that's easy to look up and read about in a book or in a YouTube video. It's very context specific to like your actual work environment. 
And so to have a, a mentor to guide you through things like that is super valuable. Are there any kind of soft skills that you feel like you've developed even more in the past year or two? Because I think you've had a, a pretty quick trajectory, um, at least from the outside. You're kind of in a little bit more of like a managerial role at a younger age. So um, what kind of soft skills have you developed in the, the past year? Or I think you've been in your position for about six months now, right? Uh, no, I've only been in my position for about four months now. Four months. Um, I would I w- three months really. I would I wouldn't say though I'm in a managerial position. I think it's it's kind of a the title of product manager is a bit of a, a misnomer. Um, I don't manage anybody directly, but um, what I do have is like a lot of relationships with different people in the company in ways that um, other departments might, might not have. They might just be very focused on their own department versus product management. And this is kind of true just across the field. You have to be um, conversant with your executive team, with your marketing team, with your sales team, with your uh, customer support and success team, and your actual directly your customers. So you're, you're kind of interacting with everybody. And two of the um, kind of soft skills I learned from my mentor from having that uh, be most of my workload is uh, one, this concept of hearts and minds, which he talks about a lot, which is like in your career, you're, you're, and especially in like the career of product management. And I think just naturally kind of as you get like higher up in your uh, profession, um, when you're just dealing with more people naturally, you're going to have these issues of um, competing incentives, like, so you could have a project that, you know, four different departments are collaborating on and each department kind of has different incentives and different timelines, for like how they want to get work done, different preferences, rather how they want to get work done. You just realize you like have individuals who are actually doing the work who have like their own careers on their minds. Like they want to contribute a certain thing to the project so that they can, you know, use that to, to, to better their career and maybe get promoted or use it to get another job, stuff like this. So you kind of have to be like aware of these competing incentives and sometimes they're not competing. Sometimes everybody's going in the same direction, but sometimes they can be competing. And like an example could be, um, you know, say you're the product manager at a company, you're responsible to deliver uh, a new feature, say it's like a new uh, capability and like Instagram DMs um, to send like videos, say, I think that already exists, but just say that wasn't a thing. Um, and say so that's like really important for the CEO. Maybe that's really important. He's like, we need this in, in three days. It has to happen. Um, and like why, why that could be for a million reasons. But for this example, we'll say like, maybe it's because uh, investors in the company see that your three top three competitors are all betting big on video in DMs. So, and your company doesn't have it right now. So like they're pressuring the CEO to be like, Hey, this, this is really important. Obviously the market's going this way. So you can have that time crunch of like three days for for that reason, for the reason of, you know, these investor incentives and 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 pressures. But then you could take that to like a software developer and say like, hey, we need this in three days. And they have different incentives to say like, well, you know, my work is a, the work that I ship is a reflection of uh, how good I am. This isn't something that, you know, I believe can be done well in three days. This looks like something really should be done in like two weeks or three weeks. And, you know, it requires more research. We have to be careful. We don't want to break this thing over here by doing this. 
So they have different concerns. They have concerns about like their kind of like reputation as a developer and the, just the quality and craft of their work and things like that. So you've got these competing incentives. So you have to be able to understand where both people are coming from and be a good communicator so you can get to a middle ground with both people to say like, maybe, you know, we're not going to do this in three days. We're not going to do this in two weeks. We're going to do this in one week. We're going to um, really define like what it means to do this. Well, we're going to do it well. Um, and, and you're, you're just honest and upfront uh, with, with all parties about expectations um, and, and what will get done, which kind of brings me to the second thing, which is to under promise and over deliver. This is also something um, my mentor talks about a lot, uh, which is not under promise and over deliver. It should, it's not, um, you're not trying to get, get one over on somebody and, uh, kind of like shortchange them. Really what it means is you're, it's, it helps you get into the habit of setting good expectations and like accurate expectations. So say somebody needs something done in two weeks and maybe, you know, they're without making, you know, excuses, maybe they're like serious roadblocks. You actually being able to do that in two weeks, like communicate that honestly, like what the roadblocks are and propose some solutions for how you're going to get over those roadblocks. Um, but just be honest, like, Hey, this, because of these things, this might not actually get done in two weeks. I'm going to err on the side of caution and say like, I can have this in three weeks and this is of the quality that it will be. If you, if I can do it then, and say they're like, all right, sure, whatever, three weeks. Um, and then over deliver means work very hard after that. See, like, all right, is there a way I can hit the two weeks? Can I actually get it under two weeks, maybe? Maybe I can get it in like a week in like five days. And then work hard to do that and like over deliver on time and over deliver on on, on quality. Um, it just frames things way better for, for people where, where you're 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 cautious and and making it known for the reasons you're being cautious, and then you are constantly over delivering on what they, they expected. It just leaves a, a really good feeling for them and for you. And uh, it creates a lot of goodwill. So that's just another, another thing. Yeah. I think one of the key things between both of those is really just transparency and having transparent communication, right? If you're, um, you know, going with the hearts and minds mentality, it's, Hey, I understand like this is a want for you. Um, you know, to have it this way, but here's the reason why we're trying to get it to be, um, uh, you know, in a week instead of two weeks and like, Hey, I, I would love for it to be two weeks and the quality that you want it to be at, but unfortunately just, we're going to have to take one for the team here and make it one week. Like that's a much better conversation than just putting up the, the brick wall and just saying, no, it has to be, it has to be one week. Right. And I think that's how a lot of career communication kind of goes it's just like a a little bit more of a hierarchical communication where you just don't really question that authority so i think the transparency definitely helps yeah and then it's also like just being more willing to be more open with communication with people like everybody uses slack now or teams or some like group messaging app for their companies and like we have a, i think a really good practice in our company of you know when there's a problem or when something good has happened um, we, we post it in like really public channels for people to see, like if that's, a, if that's appropriate and people are very good at saying like, here's how I see the problem. You know, here's what I think kind of went wrong. Here's where I maybe went wrong. Here's what I believe so-and-so's position is on this. Like, can anybody else kind of advise like what the best thing to do is? Um, and, uh, we do the same thing with like, you know, when 
new products or features get get released. Um, you, you in, in the example like we talked about with this two weeks versus three days kind of scenario, you could the way you could um, kind of save and and preserve and even strengthen relationships there is to be like, hey, like originally we wanted to get this done in three days because it was really important for these reasons. Um, you know, so-and-so this developer, you know, they, they really believe like it could, we, we needed more time, two weeks for, for these totally valid reasons. Um, and then this person, this person did really good, great job to, um, get us in the middle and, and, and get this thing released on time, um, in, in like a new one week time frame. Um, and just kind of call out like what people did good there to actually give some, some leniency on, um, can also, I think be really healthy. Yeah, definitely. At the end of the day, you're just trying to make sure that you're not having zero sum interactions. Um, all those things that you're mentioning are just like very positive sum. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me just over communication and make it uh positive sum interactions. I think those are the two big takeaways. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Did, did you have anything else? I don't really, I don't have too much else. I mean, I, I had a couple other things if we just wanted to touch on them. Um, I know we'd planned to kind of talk about um, like passion as career advice. I'm not sure if you still want to touch on that. I think we have differing, not differing opinions about, about it, but different, differing experiences. Yeah. I could touch on that real quick and then maybe we can get into some book recommendations yeah, just, I, that you, yeah. um, that you I think, want to I think it's like a big, I think it's like a big career topic that people get confused about. Yeah. So I would say it's tough because I think that a lot of people say to find your passion. And Wait, first of all, let me just preface this. I'll ask you the question of is follow your passion, good career advice. Okay. Um, I would say, I don't think it's great career advice because for some people they just, you know, it's like live to work or work to live. Um, for me personally, I just found that early in life, I wasn't particularly motivated to do things that I didn't really want to do. Um, in terms of like academically, I had a really tough time getting locked in on subjects that I wasn't interested in. Um, but if I was interested in a subject, then I was I was all in, you know, I was going to get A's on the test. I was going to study extra. I was going to make the projects even better than necessary um, in order to get a good grade. But, you know, if I wasn't interested in it, I was just going to put in a pretty average effort. You know, I didn't do bad in school, but I was kind of an average student. And so I got into exercise at a pretty young age. And from there, that passion built and built um, ultimately, you know, helping me become a better athlete and going on to get a scholarship to play baseball and then do exercise science, strength, and conditioning, nutrition, all these things that we've already touched on. And so, yes, at the end of the day, I think that I have a passion as a career, but obviously that's not something that everyone has the privilege of having. And it's probably not even something that you should strive to have, um, you know, depending on who you are, I would say a lot of times 
we actually find our passion by just going out and trying different things. I think that if you're just kind of sitting on the sidelines, just waiting until your passion comes along as a career, you're probably not going to find it. You need to just go out and try a bunch of um, different jobs if you generally want to genuinely want to try to find a passion. Um, and on, ultimately, you know, you might find it. But I think that what I'm really trying to say is that trying to go out and find your passion can put a lot of pressure on you. And you just need to go out and try to find any job that you feel like doing in the moment. Um, and then you're going to kind of figure it out. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, I think one, one thing I heard that I really liked uh, was I've heard a few people say this now, but um, it's too early in your career. Yeah. Not try to kind of like quote unquote, find yourself or wait for your passion to arise organically. The, the kind of the best way to do it. I don't know the best way, but uh, the way I've heard recommended that uh, for me has been true is to um, two things. One is to find difficult and meaningful problems to you that you care about solving. And the second is to develop skills that you're good at and can, or can get good at. Um, and th those skills in turn that also help you solve those really difficult, meaningful problems to you. Um, because <laughs> I think what people forget is like, you're not, you can't really be passionate. It's hard to be passionate about something that you're bad at. Um, you're naturally just going to be more passionate about something you're good at that you get like actual, um, you know, feedback from, and then you have some positive momentum towards and that you, um, have fun doing and see a path to getting better at. And it's like, you know, for a lot of people that is like, it's just an, an innate thing that they discover early. But for a lot of people, it's like, they don't discover it till they start doing some different thing. Like I could tomorrow find out that I'm really passionate about, uh, rowing. I've never rowed. Um, like a boat down a river. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know who knows. Like I could, I could find out it's the passion of my life. Um, you see the same thing with like rich roll, the ultra runner, like David Goggins, like these guys who never ran a marathon in their lives. And then on, one day they discover ultra running, which is like running a hundred plus miles in like a given 24, 36 hour period. And they like just fall in love with it. It's like what they become known for. Um, so yeah, I think what you said is true. Like it's just about getting out and like doing things and and developing developing skills, but also like marketable skills. If we're talking about a career, Definitely. Um, skills where people are going to reward you for having them and reward you for getting better at them. Um, because like what people forget is like that feels good and that'll make you like really passionate to keep going towards doing that thing. So long as like you know the skill isn't causing you to do something, I guess, like unethical or that you feel wrong about if it's like, um, a field that you're generally interested in or, um, some sort of subspecialty that you can find interest in. And then the skills are something you can, um, get good at, or at least have like some initial aptitude for that will just kind of breed like a, a passion for doing the thing, um, in and of itself. Yeah. I think it's tough too, because even if you're in, your passion just starting out, like, like you kind of alluded to, you might not even know that it's going to end up being something that's your passion when you start out, right? It might take you 
getting good at it to finally settle into it and really start loving it. Like I, you know, grew up training my friends and, um, you know, just exercising with them as a partner, but also like designing exercise programs. And, you know, I thought that that could be a passion. I wasn't completely sure. And then my first job in strength and conditioning, I was actually working at this, um, at this, it was like a training place, but it was a little bit of a mess. Um, they would have like an NFL athlete that would come in for a session. And then like, you know, I might train that guy or him and like some uh, college guys. And then the next hour I might be training like three-year-olds, like not even training. Like it was like babysitting. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool, but um, you know, I don't feel particularly competent at this and I'm just not enjoying the job. And it's not that it wasn't a fit. I mean, it's not that it wasn't going to be a passion. It's just that it wasn't a fit. Um, and, you know, it took me getting a better fit of a job and um, other opportunities where I was a little bit more competent for me to really discover that it's a passion. And the one other thing that I will say as well is sometimes you're so focused on what's going on in your life day to day that it's tough to see kind of the common thread that's going through your life and kind of the central themes. So I think something that's really helpful is actually asking the people that know you best um, what they think your passion might be. I know in Naval's book, you know, he thought he was going to be in maybe like hard sciences, I think, but then his mom yeah, I thought he was going to be a scientist. always said that he was going to be a salesman and he, you know, evaded that advice for so long. And then she ended up being right. So you know, go to the people that know you the best. And a lot of times they might have some of the answers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of segues nicely into some of the books that we can recommend for career stuff. Um, Definitely. And I think you have some prepared and I'll yeah, think of some, but the, the, the first of which being kind of like, and this is in no particular order, but it's something Drew just brought up is um, this book called the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which is by uh, Eric Jorgensen. And yeah, it's about Naval Ravikant, who's a serial entrepreneur, investor, technologist. Now he's like a basically like a modern day philosopher. Um, and the book is just like a collection of all these things he said uh, publicly, like on podcasts or on Twitter threads. It's not um, it's not a narrative. It's not really a um, it's not a narrative. It's not a biography. It's, it's none of it's just kind of clippings from like stuff this guy has said. Um, and it's broken up into, I think it's broken up into like life, wealth and health. Is that correct? Or like relationships? It's yeah. something like that. Exactly. Um, but it's got a pretty good like section on kind of like what you should do for your career. And, um, one of his like big pieces of advice is, yeah, you should, yeah. want to ask people like what, um, they think you're passionate about because oftentimes they might have a. You, you might be too close to the problem, so to speak, to like not realize that there's these things that you're really good at, um, but other people notice them. And then the other one is, um, what uh, what was it? It's He says, uh, oh, do, do what looks like, what feels like play to you, but looks like work to others. So just like a simple heuristic to say like, you know, do do the thing that just you can just not you just do for hours for the sake of doing it just because you you find it fun no matter like how difficult it really is that 
if you were to ask another person to do it, who's not as inclined would after 15 minutes, just quit. Cause they're like, this is not fun. It's way too difficult. That's the thing that you can kind of work like endlessly on. That's kind of a, a competitive advantage for you. So that's a great um, career book among, among many other things. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. And I think I'm just going through some of my highlights here. I, I really like that. Like you said, it's not a narrative. It's really just, it's made by a tweet storm that he had. And it's a bunch of just absolute nuggets that he ends up uh, expanding on. And absolute nuggets. Yeah, just absolute nuggets. So um, one of them that is just that the most important skill for getting rich is becoming a perpetual learner. Um, and I think he frames getting rich in terms of just freedom. It's not to go off and buy like, you know, expensive cars and things like that. It's really just about having personal freedom. And I would say that was one of the underlying um, themes of the book is really just how, how to create personal freedom in your life, both financially and then even with your mind and yourself, and then even in some of your relationships. So yeah, I think it's a, a really solid book. It helps you kind of cut through a lot of the other self-help books and just get back to some of the basic principles that are a little bit more timeless. You know, it's not, yeah. it's not the most popular pop psych book. It's uh, it's timeless I think, knowledge. I think he also phrases it in a way that's like getting rich should kind of come as like a, a byproduct of just doing what you would already be doing. Definitely. And like tapping into that. Like, I think for him, his example is that he, so he was really into science as a kid and really into like technology, but yeah, he was also had a really just acute and, and kind of honed eye for like business and entrepreneurship. Um, so because like he had, I think, yeah, I think he had like a computer science degree, um, this like really technical knowledge, but then this also really good knowledge of like spotting emerging business opportunities. He was able to make a career as an investor in like hard technology because he better than most other people could a spot like a good business model as it was coming up from a company and and b he could spot when like a technology actually had had some merit versus like other investors who don't have as much technical knowledge might not understand like what the actual benefit of the technology is or if it has staying power versus he did so i was like this goes way back to what we were talking about before with Drew, like you with Spanish and baseball and sports psychology. Um, so he just kind of layered those two things onto each other. Like he probably wouldn't have been the best uh, computer scientist in the world or the best scientist in the world. Probably wouldn't have been the best just pure businessman in the world, but combine those two things. And he's one of the best technology investors of, you know, probably like the past century. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a, cliche quote in a way but i think it's actually really good i think he has one line that's like nobody's going to be better at being you than you and yeah. i think that's that's really what it is at the end of the day it's like um you know we talked about strengths before but find some of those strengths and um you know you personally have and try to double down on them as well but uh um, yeah he he has one that's actually less cliche too that i really like which is the um the internet enables 8 billion monopolies, hmm. which is to say like you have a monopoly on B 
being yourself. Nobody else can really compete with you with it, which is gets back to kind of being like cliche. But um, the internet piece is important because he also likes to talk about how, like the internet gives you um, essentially just free reign for distributing what you can offer um, and doing it on, you know, an automated basis, either with like code or media. Um, so these are code and media in uh if anybody's interested in looking him up, Eric Jorgensen, I would look up his, um, just look up leverage Eric Jorgensen. He gives a talk on YouTube. We can put it in the show notes um, where he talks about all these different forms of like leverage throughout history where you had like um, at the bottom of like this pyramid was like human leverage, which like forever you just had like, you know, way back, um, you know, hundred years ago, it was just like, people working for other people um, and just pure, everything got done by pure manual labor. Um, then it became uh, capital leverage where now you could have access to like big amounts of capital from like investors and deploy that to like hire big outside, like contracting firms that had like machines that you could use in place of human labor. And then on top of that, like the top of the pyramid is permissionless leverage, which is code and media. So it's like for human capital and, uh, not for, for, for human leverage and capital leverage, you need permission. Cause you have to get, you have to convince people to work for you. Or you have to get, um, uh, capital. You have to convince somebody to invest in you, but permissionless is like, if you learn to code, you can write code. Like you can make your own product or your own website. Um, same thing with media, like what we're doing. We didn't have to ask anybody to be able to do this. Um, and we're just doing it. And right. once we post it, it can be listened to by whoever, um, so yeah. that's just an interesting kind of side tangent. Yeah. Another thing too, is that the permission permissionless leverage is not time bound. Um, you know, you're getting paid uh, regardless of time, right? You're not paying uh, someone else or uh, paying someone else for their labor per hour. And you're also not trading your time for money, right? It's uh, the product that you've already created in the past is continuing to accrue. Um, incentives and money and leverage. Yeah. I mean, this isn't to say that like human leverage and capital leverage aren't still used today. They of course are people have investors and people have um, employees who do work. Um, but this is just to say that like code and media are the, are the two things that uh, Naval places at like the top of like what you should be focusing on in terms of if you, if you want to build career leverage, um, that's the way to, to really do it is to build a brand through, through media or to be known or end to be known for creating like a really great digital product. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And so um, we're coming up on about an yeah, hour I, and five minutes. Is there any other couple book more, that? Yeah, I do have a couple more. Um, so I've talked about it before already, like during this episode, which is the startup of you by Reed Hoffman and Ben Casanoka, um, which uh, that is, that might be the best one I've read. I think I have actually a quote here from it, which I thought was really great, which is contrary to what many motivational gurus and Instagram influencers would have you believe there's not a true self deep within you that can unearth via introspection. Don't go looking for your passion. Instead, go looking for a meaningful place to start cultivating your soft assets. Go find skills that will be high yield for others. This will give you a sense of purpose and mastery and your passions will emerge organically. 
Yes, your aspirations shape what you do, but your aspirations will be shaped and reshaped by your experiences. You remake yourself as you grow and the world changes. So that's kind of go back, goes back to what we were talking about before. That says it much better than uh, either of us could have said it. Um, but I think that's like a great way to think about um, kind of passion and, and career. Definitely. And it seems like that segues right into the Cal Newport book, which is so good they can't ignore you. Yeah. So good they can't ignore you by Cal Newport is great. Cal Newport is a Georgetown, I believe, computer science professor. Uh, before that, he was at, like I think, Dartmouth for his undergrad and MIT for his graduate degree. Um, and he like got on the map because he started a blog when he was in college of just like how to get straight A's. He was like a really good student. Um, sure, you like, have to be to go to Dartmouth, but um, he just kind of figured out like a really great system for studying and he posted a lot about it. Um, and he's like well known for digital minimalism and deep work and, and these sorts of things. Um, but he's got this book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, um, which is actually So Good They Can't Ignore You is actually a quote from Steve Martin, the comedian, who when he was coming up in comedy, I think somebody had asked him. Somebody asked him like, about his prospects of like becoming a, a well-known comedian. Um, this was actually, actually, no, this is way after he'd made it. Somebody asked him like how he did it, like um, what he was focused on. And he, he said that he was focused on just becoming so good that he couldn't be ignored, which is like the center central message of Cal Newport's book, which is like, you know, follow your passion. It's bad career advice. What's more important to do is become good at something that is both rare and valuable. And then that becomes uh, really valuable career capital, he calls it. And then you can trade that career capital for jobs that are like great jobs that you're passionate about. So like if you spend time to get really good, like so good, they can't ignore you at things that are rare and valuable. You can then, um, use what you, the, the career capital you gain from that and then trade it for really great opportunities that you're excited and passionate about, which, you're probably passionate about because you've figured out how to do these things really well. Yeah. And probably get paid pretty handsomely for them as well. Um, and yeah, I think that kind of just goes back to the specialist versus generalist thing. And a clarifying point that I want to add is, you know, there's a difference between you dictating what those, um, specialized things are versus the market. And I think you can have a intersection of things that people don't realize are valuable yet, but a lot of times it's good to just kind of see what's valuable in the market and what niche is needed, and then go back and see what skills that you have that you can put together to align with it. Um, you know, it's it's letting the market do the talking instead of you kind of forcing something into the market. You might find that that's a little bit more difficult. Yeah, totally. And like, you can kind of look at some of those skills that might be valued by the market and be like intimidated because you can think, Oh, I don't have any of these skills. But as soon as you flip it of lens of like, all right, what can I see myself getting good at? Or like what would at least seems interesting enough to put some time into becomes much easier to dive into things. Definitely. So Um, I think that might be a good spot to wrap. Yeah. I've, yeah, I had a couple more books, but I'm going to put them in the show notes. The other two books that I had were How to Get Ahead uh, by Zach Slayback. That's a really good, just kind of early career um, early career book about just like how to build a personal brand, how to how to network, how to uh, send cold outreach. This is how I learned about cold outreach, this book actually. 
um, to potential like career mentors, um, how to differentiate between people who are like advisors for you in your career versus people who are true mentors versus when it's appropriate to like hire a teacher or like a career coach. So I think that's a good one for people put that in the show notes. And then I've talked about this one before too, which is career advice for uniquely ambitious people by Eric Jorgensen. Um, that is just a short 29 page book of like Eric Jorgensen's top pieces of career advice, which, um, we've talked about on here before, but, uh, I will just put that in the show notes. Everybody should just go, go read that. It'll take you 30 minutes. Yeah. So appreciate the, uh, book recommendations. I think some of these are ones that I've seen on the Kindle library, but I've not actually, uh, picked them up yet. I think you've told me to read career advice for uniquely ambitious people about a hundred times. Um, yeah, well, and I need to I can't, actually, I can't see, I can't see any excuse for anyone not yeah, <laughs> it'll, it'll take you pages. 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to actually go and do that as my homework for next pod. Um, yes. but yeah, um, it's our first time doing a little bit more of a focused podcast. Uh, feel free if you've gotten to this point to send over any feedback that you guys have. And once again, thank you guys for listening, We're trying to keep evolving it every week. And any feedback is appreciated. Awesome. Cool. We'll see you again next week.